0: Welcome back to The Secret Life of Leaders, where you get unprecedented access to the inner workings of Australia's leading thinkers and practitioners at the forefront of environmental, social and governance change. The cutting edge of change can often feel lonely, but you're not alone here. The Secret Life of Leaders rehumanises the experience of life and leadership and creates a platform for us all to learn and grow together. Let's dive in. Today, we have a remarkable guest who has dedicated her entire career to advancing gender equality, particularly in the context of peacekeeping and security. Jennifer Whitwer is an international consultant, author, and speaker with over four decades of experience in leading organisational change and workplace reform. For the past 15 years, Jen has been at the forefront of promoting the global women, peace, and security agenda. She's played a pivotal role in developing and implementing workplace education programs, women's leadership initiatives, and advising senior military leadership on gender equality and diversity policies. In 2012, Jen led the implementation of the Women, Peace and Security agenda within the Australian Defence Force and then the broader security sector. She has participated in international forums and projects related to Women, Peace and Security, And women's representation in armed forces, even serving as the first Australian Defence Force Gender Advisor to NATO operations in Afghanistan. But her commitment doesn't stop there. She's continued her work with United Nations Women, consulting on gender and women, peace and security in various regions. Her extensive contributions have earned her numerous national awards and recognition. Today, Jennifer Whitwell will share her insights into women's involvement in peacekeeping and her groundbreaking work with the UN and military organisations to ensure a safe and productive environment for women. Tune in for a compelling conversation that explores the intersection of gender, security, and global peace efforts. Jennifer Whitwell, welcome to the Secret Life of Leaders. Thanks, Angela. It's really great to be here. Excited to speak to you today <laughs> about this topic. Let's start at the beginning and perhaps you can tell us a bit about who you are and how you came to be leading the conversation both here in Australia and internationally about the global women, peace and security agenda.
1: Yeah, there's a very long history and a long story to this, Um, but what I say now about who I am is that I work on gender and gender equality issues. I'm a speaker. I'm an author. I also like to say that I'm a mother of two amazing young, Uh, adult daughters and uh, I've had uh, some wonderful opportunities and experiences in a very long military career that started in about 1981 and uh, you know from my experiences in that organisation here in Australia um, I've been very passionate about advancing gender equality particularly for women in militaries and security organisations primarily based on my own experience because when I first joined the Navy back then Um, You know, women uh, didn't really have the same access to opportunities um, and resources that uh, men did. Uh, And times have changed, but it's been a slow process to get to that point. And it was really probably about 15 years ago that the Australian military was starting to look at cultural reform, thinking about how women were engaged and represented and were taking up leadership positions. And I was just fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. This is probably about 2008 which then kind of led to a series of jobs that enabled me just to start tapping into the international work that was being done around women's participation in peace building, in peacekeeping, in conflict resolution. Um, and so, so there was some internal work I was doing within the Australian military around women's participation and leadership, and then that led to working with uh, NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organisation, um, and the UN, the United Nations, on advancing this agenda that's called Women Peace and Security. And essentially it is a base, it's a series of ten resolutions that have been adopted by the Security Council that have been taken up by a range of international organisations who are involved in peace and security efforts to advance the inclusion of women in peace building, to recognise the disproportionate impact of conflict on women and girls and to advance this concept of applying a gender perspective or a gender lens across the work that is done in peacebuilding and peacekeeping and other peace processes. So we make sure that we're thinking about how does conflict impact women and men. And so, uh, as I said, I've been involved with that now for probably about 15 years. I've worked overseas uh, with NATO and UN in Afghanistan, in Ukraine, in Jordan. I've worked with UN Women in uh, New York as well. I've worked with other international organisations that are progressing work on, firstly, integrating women into security organisations so that they can be better represented in peace and security efforts and in peacekeeping operations. And also helping those organisations think about how are they approaching these gendered implications of conflict and how are they going to address those issues in their military operations and exercises. And so on that basis, I've just tapped into my international network. I've been working since about 2018 as an international consultant after I left full-time service in the military and just continue to work on assisting some of these security organisations with developing their own gender strategies to enable those women peace and security goals to be achieved in our peace and security, in our global peace and security efforts. And it's a it's a concept that applies across all the work that is done in peace and security. It's adopted by all the United Nations member states, and I said as I said, NATO as well too, so the NATO countries and the NATO partner countries. So it's very much an an international approach to the way that we should be trying to resolve conflict. There's so much richness, in
0: what you've just said there, Jen. I cannot wait to unpack that with you bit by bit, particularly, mm-hmm. like the, you know, there's kind of like the front end concept of if we could, if we could have more women integrated in these peace building, peacekeeping, and military environments, we might uh, create better outcomes down the track. And then there's the context of women in those environments itself. And then there's uh, the after effect, which is the impact of conflict and the disproportionate impact of conflict on women. And so I want to unpack all of that with you. But I'm also curious, out of all of the topics you could have pursued in your career, you've chosen gender. And do you remember when we met at a conference about three or four years ago, and we had to do a one-liner pitch to each other on what we were doing in the world. And you said something about women's, you know, participation in the military and I think I made an expletive remark and said, gee, you've got a big job on your head. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Why gender? Like, why is this so important to you? Well, as I said, I think that
1: it it sort of comes from my own experiences. So coming from, you know, very early years in the Australian Navy, where we were not equal, women were not equal, we didn't have equal access to those opportunities to uh, certain roles. We couldn't uh, we couldn't. We had limited roles that we could actually um, undertake in the Australian Navy and across the military in general. We couldn't deploy. Um, we couldn't be in combat or combat-related roles. We couldn't uh, essentially leave Australian waters on an Australian Navy warship. Uh, so very much constrained to the to the home front, I suppose, for lack of a better word. And also a couple of personal experiences where there's a lot of sexual harassment and sexual abuse and bullying that was occurring in the decades prior to when I joined and since, and there were not many who were immune to that environment. And so from those experiences and from some of my colleagues, for me, it was a matter of saying, you know, this is not fair that this is happening to women and I don't like what's happened to me, but I actually want to help things change. I want other women to not have to go through what I've gone through, whether it's to do with the personal harassment or bullying, or whether it's the more systemic structural barriers or the discrimination that we had at the time. And I thought, I'm just going to stick it out because, you know, these men are making life very difficult for me but I'm not going to give in. And I don't judge those women who left at any time because of some of the behaviours that were occurring at that time. But I decided I was going to stick it out. And I'm glad that I did because over time, you know, things did start to change. The military started to look at the way in which women and other groups of uh, people were being treated within the organisation and decided to take Proactive steps to address that. And probably for the last at least 15 years, uh, maybe a little bit more, the Australian military has been working very hard to uh, overcome the history of the treatment of women and others, um, the, the bullying and the harassment. Putting in place, you know, processes and systems to support people, um, and really thinking and and act, and acting on this need to consider that diverse perspectives in any organisation enhances operational effectiveness. You know, is it, it enhances better outcomes for an organisation. And so, I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to be a part of the change, not only just being there and experiencing the change, but actually helping to drive the change. And probably around about two thousand and three was really the first time I was offered a role. Uh, it was a very much a niche role on organizational culture and looking at Navy's organizational values and mission and purpose and and thinking about well how do men and women fit in that and, and, and how should they fit in that? Because, of course, historically, women have just been added to this male-dominated organization. There's an expression we use in International circles called add women and stir. So just plop the women in, stir, and then hopefully it all works out. It often doesn't, and it and it didn't. And so yeah, so just been offered these opportunities to actually be in the in the driver's seat to actually help the senior people and the junior people of the organisation start to think about how we can make the organisation more inclusive, more accepting of those diverse perspectives, more accepting of women because we had a very small proportion of women. When I joined, it was about 7% across the Australian military. Now it's about 20%. And that's still not huge, given that women make up 50% of the Australian population, but it is a change. And, And so there is a need to actually get more women engaged. And I wanted to be, as I said, in the driver's seat, helping make this change so that women, so it would open up opportunities for women to then be in those positions to help drive more change across the nature of of the business that a military does. Mm. And it has proven that in the last few years, we have seen women reach the highest ranks. We have our first four-star general in the army, woman four-star general. We've got three stars, we've got two stars, we've got one stars, we've got loads of colonel equivalents, and, and that's fantastic to see. And we wouldn't have had that 10, 15, 20 years ago. And so they are making steps up the ladder, which is really great to see. But not only that, it's opening up to smaller opportunities and choice and choice for men and women too. Choices around, you know, priorities for families. Um, men can make those decisions as well, too. And that's really important in terms of the gender equality work. And so for me, gender equality has been the focus, but I'm conscious that also the work that needs to be done and has been done and, and is being done is, is not only on gender. It's not only based on gender. We have also our other gender identities as well that are coming to the fore. We have the LGBTI intersections. We have other intersections of individuals that actually create difference and diversity. And it's about kind of thinking about, well, how do they all come together and create that richness that we need? And when, when we think simply as a military that our job is to go and do peacekeeping in a conflict environment, we need to essentially mirror the communities that we're going there to support. And so we can't all go, we can't go there as this all-white male or all-white male and female force and then say we're the peacekeeping force and, you know, we represent the UN and this is the job we're here to do. We need to actually have people who speak the language of the country that we're going to. Mm. or might have that ethnic background of that country that we're going to. We, we need to have people who have different skin colours so that you know others will look at the military people in community and go, you know what, you are representing us. And that helps actually then create the bonding and the engagement that's necessary in order to create conditions for peace.
0: You're know, speaking such sense, Jen. <laughs> I want to explore this concept firstly in let's chunk up to what's possible or what we what we can only at this stage imagine could be possible in the world with a more inclusive, representative, accepting military environment and peacekeeping environment. And particularly as we reflect on uh, the state of the world and some of the significant conflicts that we're seeing across different regions at the moment, what Do you believe could be possible with that greater representation, inclusiveness, acceptance across all of the diversity of contributors?
1: Yeah. First of all, I have to acknowledge that a lot of work has been done in recent years by the UN particularly, but also by NATO, on trying to institutionalise gender perspective into peace and security efforts, as well as increasing the numbers of women, particularly in peacekeeping environments. What I would say, though, from an academic and research perspective, is that sort of the focus on numbers almost distracts from the fact that there are still structural barriers and institutional challenges to women participating in peace and security efforts. And if I just take peacekeeping as an example, because that's the area that I know more than, for example, peace building or peace processes, we still have issues around this add women and stir effect, where we talk about the added value that women bring to peacekeeping because they're women so therefore they can then do certain roles so they could do search of searching women they can you know interview victims of conflict-related sexual violence they can participate in programs that assist women combatants from non-state actor combatants who, who may have been you know, involved in the fighting. And so we get this sort of picture that, oh, we add women to peacekeeping because they can do these specific roles that only women can do. The problem with that is that we then we don't actually then interrogate male peacekeepers' added value, and I might just highlight here that there's a big issue around sexual exploitation and abuse in peacekeeping environments where peacekeepers and their male peacekeepers are exploiting women and girls in the local communities where they're deployed to, to the extent that often women are coerced into sexual relations and relationships and, you know, sometimes on an economic basis because they might get something in return for that particular consensual relationship. And there's a lot of issues around that power and control that male peacekeepers have in those communities that they deploy to. And so you've got this issue with um, men in peacekeeping, but we don't interrogate their performance. We don't say, well, what's the added value of men, actually? And when you think about the fact that, you know, in peacekeeping today, uh, peacekeepers are not there to fight. They're not there to take part in any kind of conflict. They are there to defend themselves and to defend others. But there are a whole range of different skills that are required in peacekeeping that over and above the general standard kind of skills that soldiers might have learnt to do as a soldier which is to kill people so we have to think more broadly then about well then who brings those skills and those experiences and perspectives to peacekeeping and it's men and it's women and it's the intersections of those so gender identities sexual identities race you know ethnic backgrounds religious backgrounds and a whole range of things and so so, we have to stop talking about the added value of women so that we're actually saying women have a right to be there in peacekeeping because it's a human right to have equal opportunity, right? The same as it is for men. Yep. And so, yeah, so if we do that, then what we're saying is that we're valuing the contribution of men and women equally. And we're not saying that one or the other is better or one or the other is used in this capacity. What we then do is we have a diverse team from which we can choose the people we need to go and undertake a specific task. And so what I really feel that uh, we can do with this agenda and the Women, Peace and Security agenda particularly is start to get people to think we have to almost regender our militaries or reshape our militaries and our peacekeeping missions to exactly say that, to stop saying, you know, women add value for this reason, that we actually just value diversity. If we start to have some conversations like that, if we start to think about, well, why do our peacekeeping missions replicate national militaries? And of course, it's because they are dominated by men and they've had traditional structures and they bring them across to peacekeeping. And therefore, there are issues around power and control. There are stories of male leaders in peacekeeping missions who will not send women out to do a particular task because they want to protect them from danger. Now, I don't think I know any military woman who would say, oh, no, I don't want to go and do something because I'm worried that I might get hurt because that's what we train for and that's what we want to do and we want to be part of it. And so there's these assumptions, these gendered assumptions that go on both in national militaries as well as in peacekeeping that men make assumptions about what women can or cannot do. Mm. And so that then constrains their ability to carry out their role that they've been posted to do or to demonstrate, you know, their professional skills and experience. So there's those kind of challenges that still exist. And so great work that's been done on bringing up the numbers and increasing the percentages, but we also, as we move forward in the future, we need to think about how are we creating a military force or a peacekeeping force that actually responds to the conflict and meets the needs and concerns, security concerns of the people in that community. And if you start to think from that basis and then back out, then you'll start to see, well, what is it? What sort of team do we need to actually respond Mm. to that? And maybe we can reshape our military to better respond to the contemporary conflicts and and circumstances that we're actually finding ourselves in.
0: Mm. This may sound a little fantastic (laughs) or fantastical. I'm wondering if these problems were solved, and clearly it will be a while before they are, but if they were, what could the military look like and how could that be extended out into the world? Like I'm wondering what's possible in the positive if these problems were solved. Like can you help us create a vision of what's available to us? Yeah, it's a very difficult
1: question to answer. I suppose that the the anti-militarist feminists would say that, you know, Women becoming equal in military organisations was never going to be something that would work or come to fruition or is realistic because if that is the case, then all we're doing is perpetuating those male norms and standards that have existed traditionally and historically, and we're just fitting into those, and that is the add women and stir effect, and that is quite true. And so in a way we can't say, well, we have equality because we've just fitted into those standards that existed before women were permitted to work in the military. It hasn't actually, those military institutions have not thought about, well, how do we change to adapt to the different community that we're taking our people from? You know, Australia doesn't look like it did 50 years ago when predominantly it was only white, you know, male Anglo-Saxons who joined the military. We now want the diversity that the Australian community can provide. And so it's taking us a bit longer to think about, well, how, how do we change to stop thinking about the way that we did before? Stop just saying, well, if you want to join the military, you have to be the same. You have to look like us. You have to sound like us. You have to act like us. And that's really how it was, certainly when I joined and probably for a long time after. We were just expected to adapt and conform to what existed. Now the time has come where we really need to think about how do we adapt to. The young people, for example, they don't want to work the same way that we did when we were their age. You know, I'm a boomer. I've got two daughters in their 20s and they don't want to work the way that I did. They want more flexibility. They want to move from one job to the next. They keep moving around. They want to get more experience and and develop their skills. And they certainly don't see the military as a place that would enable them to do that. Um, And if they're representative of their peers and colleagues, then we're in a bit of trouble. Um, And so what are we we doing to change that so that we can have these people come in? Now, maybe it's even things outside the box like enabling people to come in and out of the military at certain points, go and get experience somewhere else, come back in, but without any detriment to their rank and their position um, and so on. I don't know what the answer is, to be honest. I do feel that we will never succeed in the eyes of the gender equality advocates unless we start to think about how do we adapt to those different needs and concerns of the people who we want to come in and be part of our organisation. It's no longer acceptable to say, well, you just have to be like, you have to conform to us if you want to join. And look, I've seen some relaxations around that. Canada is a really good example. The Canadian Armed Forces, where they have changed their uniform rules Significantly, and they have actually said each and every person can wear whichever part of the uniform inventory they feel actually identifies with their gender, right? And so, you might have your non binary folk or gender fluid folk who might want to change from essentially what is the standard men's uniform to the standard women's uniform or somewhere in between. They're allowing men to grow their hair, you know, all sorts of different rules are now applying because they're actually recognizing. That we can't necessarily say to everybody, you just have to be this model of the soldier that we've had since the ANZAC soldier, essentially. And I'm not trying to demean the ANZAC soldier or the ANZAC legend at all. It's very important that we maintain that. But we have to do it in a way that's actually contemporary and that's going to fit so that we are actually a fit-for-purpose military or we are a fit-for-purpose peacekeeping operation. We can't do it without those changes.
0: I see you, Jen, navigating this conversation in such a sophisticated way, and obviously you're used to it from your consulting, where you're not offending what's been done in the past, but highlighting that we can get better outcomes with a more equal and inclusive, accepting, representative approach, and those examples of the symbolic institutional structural cultural barriers that would need to change and are starting to change they seem like small things but are symbolically significant in representing the change that needs to be made and I see how navigating this conversation with me and what what a skill you must have developed in that space. If we can take a step uh, back, bunk back down from the bigger picture organisational view down to how you have supported people, women in these environments. I know that you are driving change there and that you do have a roadmap for it because you've written about it in Against the Wind. And I was just wondering if you'd like to summarise you know, if there will be women listening to this podcast in maybe in the military, maybe not, but certainly, of course, in male dominated environments who want to know, well, what are the principles for not just surviving, but winning and advancing myself in this environment? Perhaps you can reflect on against the wind and, and anything you've learned since then and offer some principles for women in this situation.
1: Yeah, I think that probably what I wrote about in Against the Wind, which is now only only three years ago, I think those principles around giving women, I guess, the confidence to address some of those institutional challenges or or the structural barriers that might still exist within their organisations still ring true. And I feel that I'm very conscious of the fact that I do have to say to women and men who might read my book or who I might have conversations with around women's participation in male-dominated professions, is that I'm not about saying it's about fixing women because there's nothing wrong with women. And all too often, you know, I've probably attended lots of conferences and, and, you know, seminars and workshops about, well, what it is that we can do to change ourselves so we better fit into something is, is not the right way to do it. And if we are true to our own leadership style, you know, Me personally, I wouldn't want someone saying, oh, well, you need to do this in order to be this. It's about saying, I feel that every woman should have the opportunity to achieve her full potential. Now, the reason I focus on women is because of the disadvantage and the discrimination that women have had for you know time immemorial coming to work in public life and in state-based organisations that have been traditionally male-dominated. And I feel that it's important to say, You are already, you are there because you are already capable and you have the skills and you have the education and the intellect and the the smarts that that organization is looking for. Otherwise, they wouldn't have hired you. So, you're an appropriate fit anyway in that respect. But they shouldn't expect you to have to change in order to progress. And we all want to progress. It doesn't matter whether we're working at McDonald's or whether we're working in the military. Generally, most people want to progress. Now, does that mean that you actually have to belong to the, what we call the boys club? And that still exists. The Friday night drinks or the Saturday golf and the sorts of things that men have traditionally done that women may not necessarily be inclined to want to participate in. And in fact, even just yesterday, I was talking to a police officer of my age who was saying, who's a non drinker. And he was saying that when he first joined the police some 20 odd years ago, went to work at a local police station and was essentially told that he would not be trusted because he didn't drink with them because they felt that the only time you could be truthful and honest about anything was when you were drunk. And he said, well, I'm not going to start drinking in order for you to trust me, so you'll have to find some other way to learn to trust me. Hmm. Uh, and that's, that's the approach that I take with women as well too. And I think it's important they just they say, I don't need to be fixed but maybe what I do need is to be encouraged to either complement my skills or increase my confidence. How do I do that? Maybe I need a coach to help me do that, to stop thinking that I'm an imposter, to do all these things that women actually just impose upon themselves, right? And so I just try to help them move through that so they can achieve their full potential, so they can realize that they're capable of doing whatever it is they want to do. And I never say do the same as men or or to the same standard as men or whether as good as the men because that implies that men set the standard that women have to achieve. My view is that it's about everyone achieving their own full potential and whatever that is. And it might only be to a certain rank level. Maybe they don't want to go any further. It might be they want to achieve very senior rank or it might be other things that they want to achieve in their life that demonstrate that they've achieved their full potential. And so I think that those sort of things are still ring true. And as far as my leadership style goes, whether I'm actually, you know, working with, for example, I've worked with UN Women in Ukraine and Jordan, and I've worked directly with the colleagues there, and also with colleagues in the armed forces and the military. So I've worked very closely with people from different organizations, and I do it in a mentoring kind of capacity. So while I'm there to help kind of gather information, do some research, gather, also help develop strategies, I'm also doing some training, for example, in the classroom. And I'm not telling them what to do because I'm very conscious that I'm a white person, a white woman who might be talking to women in an Eastern European country or an Arab country who do things differently Mm -hmm. and they have different cultural kind of expectations. My job is not to tell them how it's done or what to do. I can tell them my experience. And they, may, it may resonate with them, or it may not. But I help them think about how they might address a particular situation. And to me, that's just mentoring, or and it's, you know maybe a blend of mentoring and coaching along the way. But it's just about, it's about helping them realise that they are capable, that they they have everything that they need, and I don't want to see that change.
0: Mm. I love that. And as you know, I'm a big supporter of a mentoring and coaching frame where we know that the answer already resides within the person that we're working with. And it's our job to help that emerge, usually through questioning or, you know, helping those good characteristics come forward. So thank you for those examples. Just to go back up to the organisational level for a moment about making change structurally, culturally in these bigger organisations and you've worked with some of the world's biggest in the UN and NATO. What are the challenges in making those organisations safer and more inclusive for women and what have you learned so far?
1: Yeah, there's two challenges that I feel that I've faced as I've been working in this gender space and irrespective of whether it's been a big international organisation or even an armed force or a police force, the constant need to have to explain what gender equality is and why, and whether it's gender equality or whether it's equality for other minority groups and the need for special measures or special equity measures in order to bring them up to level playing field. This is the conversation that we have that people like me have time and time and time again with women and men. They think, for example, That equality is where I might have a male colleague and we're wearing the same uniform and we get paid the same and we're the same rank and we do the same job. That's equality, yeah? But what they don't realise is that equality is actually it's not about being the same and it's not about treating everyone the same, that it is about equal access. And when I think about, for example, the voice referendum that we've just had, And the divisiveness that came, that, you know, that came out of that in the last six months, right up until the referendum. And this notion that it would cause inequality amongst Australian citizens actually really disappointed me. But I see that it is a reflection of the way in which people understand equality and that equality, it can only become inequality if a certain group is advantaged over another, if you're actually all on the same level if you're already starting from the same starting point, you know, it's it's a level playing field. And for our First Nations people, that was not the case. So you can't argue that by putting in place a special measure, which essentially is what this is, an equity measure, is actually going to give them any advantage over the rest of the population in Australia. So this whole issue around explaining quality is tiresome, to be honest. Mm. The second part of that is the pushback and the resistance you get from you know, seemingly educated, professional, qualified people because they don't understand equality, because they don't understand the need to rectify any historical disadvantage and discrimination, and in this case, that women have faced over the years. Mm. So equality, you know, it was only in 2011 that the Australian government lifted the gender restrictions on combat roles in the Australian Defence Force, and it was only in 2016 that the Australian military started to recruit women from the public into those combat roles. 2016, it's only seven years ago. And so up until 2000, essentially 2016, women did not have equality because we weren't able to access all roles within our organisation. And so that people have this notion about what gender equality means. So the pushback and resistance is there and it's strong um, and you get it every time you turn around. It doesn't matter who you're talking to. Um, unless you're working with colleagues in, 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 you know, my, my network and my community, we all get it and we all understand it. Um, but the average person doesn't. And you actually have to have this conversation with them to explain mm-hmm. to them what it actually means. And the people who are generally pushing back on it are those white privileged people, mostly men in male dominated organizations who don't see their privilege. They don't actually even recognize that they hold that privilege, mm. and yeah. So to me, that's one of the biggest challenges of doing this work is really the explaining, is educating, is training, and that's why across the work that the UN and NATO is doing on institutionalising gender in all respects across you know their peace and security efforts is training.
0: I think you've just articulated there, Jen, around the tiresome nature of this constant need to explain the core foundational concepts and then the cultural and institutional structural societal pushback and resistance that you get. For the people who listen to this podcast, which, you know, it's aimed at ESG change leaders. So whether they're working on issues of social justice or environmental sustainability or governance change, I'm smiling as I listen to you because I'm resonating with what you're saying. At the same time, I've got the heaviest heart for the people that continue to, you know, face into those challenges. And they do, and you do. And it's Kind of leads me to the next question around why and how you keep leaning into those conversations, especially, you know, I I was talking to you before we began around the small wins that you must see through your efforts and yet the larger playing field is moving at at a glacial pace, you know, relatively speaking. How do you keep leaning back into this work? And I think you've answered the why, but how?
1: Yeah, well, because I love it. To be honest, I'm very passionate about it. I'm inspired by the women and men that I work with who want to come along on the journey of change, particularly the women that I work with either in training or in developing policy, women from other countries. I'm inspired by all of that. I didn't realise that my military career was going to lead me into this role, but I honestly, I thank God, and I'm not religious, but I thank God for giving me the opportunity to meet and enrich my life with people who have had different experiences, different you know perspectives, just it really opened my eyes to what was going on, particularly for women around the world, not just in conflict environments, but in just in different countries, the challenges that they face because of religion or other cultural restraints. And so, I, I'm just inspired by that. And I get up each morning. I have to tell you, I get up each morning, and whether it's working on a project the UN or whether it's progressing my studies or whether I'm doing some research or whether I'm writing an article, I get up each morning and I think I can't wait to get into the office and start working. And, I, and I, some of what I do uh, without pay. So this is not about being paid uh, for my expertise and my knowledge. I do because I love it mm-hmm. and I'm very passionate about it. And I was even saying to somebody the other day that I feel like, in many occupations, people look forward to retirement often because it's a physical-based occupation where obviously at some point they need to kind of wind it down and maybe just start to enjoy life a little bit more and relax and, and do some other things besides that sort of hard, intensive labour kind of role. But for me, where I've been using my brain and my capacity to research and to write, I feel that I can be doing this for a very long time and I feel that I've got a lot to contribute. I may well leave the, I guess, the boots on the ground stuff to some of the younger women who are coming up behind me who want to continue to work in this space. But I will always want to be there contributing in some way. And I feel that I can do that because I'm challenging myself as well and learning. Uh, so the learning doesn't stop. It just, it continues. And it doesn't matter whether it's a, uh, you know, for example, I worked for three years with UN women in Jordan and worked with women in the Jordanian armed forces and the police. And then right up until now, I've just been in Korea delivering some leadership, empowerment, networking, training for some uh, women military officers on a peace operations course. You know, different contexts, different scenarios. But the women are the same. Honestly and truly, it doesn't matter what country they come from or what their background is or some come from religious countries, That they all face the same challenges, the same institutional challenges, the same structural barriers, the same family issues. And,
0: you know, connecting with these women,
1: that enriches my life. And I think that's what drives me the most is that contact.
0: So beautifully articulated. Thank you, Jen. And I've been following you all over the world lately on LinkedIn and other places and some of the countries you've mentioned, Ukraine, Jordan, Afghanistan, Korea, there's probably others. I'm curious about your approach to leading others, particularly in those multicultural environments, and how you would describe your own leadership style? Broad question. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Actually, when I was reflecting on this question, I thought when I first joined the Navy, of course, I pretty much, it was about managing people. It wasn't really about being a leader. And I don't recall that ever really being sort of something that was reinforced, the leadership part of it. Management was certainly really important. Like As a logistics officer, which is what I was at that time, my job was just to get whatever was needed, you know, to the right place at the right time, whether it's food or money or hardware or whatever it was that was required. And that requires managing people to achieve that. I didn't feel that I came into kind of a leadership capacity really until uh, the early 2000s when I started my journey in uh, roles related to organizational culture and reform, where I was actually being asked for my input and based on my skills and my experience and my knowledge as a woman and my lived experiences, that I I felt that I was now in a position where I can show some leadership. And the roles that I had from then, right through to working on Women, Peace and Security, were pretty much roles that were created for me. I was there on my own. I didn't have a team at any point and I was working for senior officers. And so I had to show leadership. I had to be a leader, not just of myself. I had to, I wanted to be a good role model to other women who were junior to me. I also wanted to demonstrate that I could influence up in terms of leadership, showing that for those that were senior to me who may not have known perhaps as much as I did on a particular topic, that they were listening to me and I definitely needed to show that good leadership and actually enabling that to occur. And there's a lot of, you know, of course, all the nuances of leadership, trust and professional capability and being respected and all those things that all roll into one. And I felt that I achieved that in all those roles that I had. But certainly in my role as a practitioner working in international development, and that's how I see the work that I've been doing definitely since I left the Navy in 2018 and been working for the UN, is that is it's about helping people come along on the journey with me, right? So whether it's about a change process, whether it's about uh, education and training, uh, whether it's about developing some form of gender policy that's necessary or conducting a gender audit or a gender self-assessment, which is one way to examine if certain organisations still have those structural barriers, uh, against women or other uh, other groups bringing them along and part of that is uh building trust and it's a really important element of the relationship that i need to have with people in order to get them on board to get them to come along with me is that trust and that means respecting you know each other's opinions input valuing those 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 contributions working with people from different cultures, countries, religions, organisations, adapting. You know, I've become so less a military officer than I actually envisaged that I ever would, but I still love working with military organisations. So there's kind of a a dichotomy, I guess, there, that, in a sense that I still want to work in this very niche area, but I have really worked very hard to, I guess, almost demilitarise myself, perhaps from ways in which I might have operated when I was in the military, to thinking about how do I work with people from different backgrounds. They might come from uh, non-government organisations, they might be academics, they might be senior bureaucrats, senior military officers, but I need to work with all these people. So I've got to build their trust. They have to know that I know what I'm doing, that I am the expert that I say that I am, that I can demonstrate that through my advice to them, through the work that I produce for them. Build that trust. And then also in terms of the women that I work with, I think another really important part of my approach to leading others is actually providing hope. And I know that sounds kind of very esoteric, but when I think back just to the training I did in Korea, we had 24 women from 12 Asia-Pacific countries, ranging in rank from junior officers through to colonels. They not only inspired me because of their their endless energy, enthusiasm, their spirit, but also just the way in which they were prepared to open their their eyes and their ears and their hearts to hearing about other people's experiences, other women's experiences, sharing those experiences, learning from them, having discussions about them, being open and vulnerable, and that's also part of the trust thing. You have to have the trust in order for them to do that. And so I try to role model that. I guess my leadership style now is that I role model those kind of behaviours. Like I said, I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm there to help them realise what they can do um, and, you know, just bring them along on the journey and let them find their way on that journey.
0: Wow. I'm glad we're recording this, Jen, because I feel like I could contribute to a leadership textbook on everything that you've just offered there in, in your response. But as I was taking notes, I'm grouping things together and there's this really – Like There were four key themes in there for me, which is this role modeling, this influential, independent, self-contained professional that often when you're working alone or you're at the leading edge of the discussion where the support isn't there with you yet, you've really got to be leading yourself well in that way alongside that you do ooze competence I've got to say and the quality of your articulation is without question so I think that goes along with the role modeling as well building trust and providing hope what a formula
1: (laughs) well I I like to think that it works and I know that I get a lot of feedback on the value that I have provided you know particularly the women that I'm working with and that's even if it's informally to me quietly that's all I care about that's the validation that I. Mm -hmm. that i love receiving i don't want it to go through any formal process i just want to have those one-on-one conversations with women where they say thank you for that like that's really changed my life like it's given me a different perspective i now feel confident i can go to that peacekeeping operation and i know that i'm going to do my best whatever it is you know it's because in some small way or some small part i've contributed to that and that's all i need to know
0: Yes, you have. Thank you. So well described. I'm curious about how you as a person, as a woman person, has have matured over your career. And I'm particularly interested in how you've focused on improving your own self-leadership over the years. Like what are you doing better now from the perspective of leading yourself through these learnings and experiences?
1: Well, of course, everything comes with age, right? So we kind of you know I'm a vastly different woman than I was when I was 19 years old and first joining the navy but I think the most important thing I've learned over the years and what I help to impart to other women is firstly to control the thoughts in your head right sometimes I say to my daughters oh, I don't think I can in fact it was I was talking to my oldest daughter about starting my doctoral studies and I said, I don't know why I'm doing this. I'm, I'm just such a fake. I'm, you know, like I'm an impostor. I don't know why they've accepted me into the program. Maybe I'm taking on too much. You know. And my daughter just shook her head and goes, Mum, you know, what would you say to a woman who came to you and said exactly that?"
0: Right. Had won the highest honor in her master's program, by the way, that the university offers, which Jennifer has. What would you say to her? Jim?
1: Exactly. Like, take your own medicine, Mum, and stop. Stop saying these things to yourself. She said, you're perfectly capable of doing it. You want to do it. It's it's right up there, your alley. It's the it's stuff that you know. Stop saying these things to yourself. And so we all do it. And I don't think I thought too much about things like that when I was 9 to 10, 20, in my 20s, maybe not even in my 30s. I guess I was still still focused on just doing my job and managing people and, and just getting through from one job to the next. It's in this work that I've been doing in the international space that has made me really think more about um, ex- understanding that I am an expert and I should own it, right, and and not to say, oh, no, you know, no, I'm not as good as so-and-so or whatever. I've worked hard to do the training that I've needed, to do the academic studies, to, to you know, put some credibility behind my practitioner skills, to do certain projects and jobs that have then built my skills and my expertise and then to be at a point where often people will say, see Jim Whitworth. You know, like if you want this done, go and ask Jim Whitwer, Or if you want some advice on this, go and ask Jim Whitwer." And so I'm going to own that now because I feel that I've worked really hard to get there. So I think the first thing is controlling your thoughts. So that's what I have to do a lot of the time. I think taking initiative, one of the things I learned very early on 15 years ago was take initiative. And one of the things I say in my book is when you get offered an opportunity say yes and take it. You know, it's something that Richard Branson says. When you're offered an opportunity, even if you don't know how to do it, say yes because you don't know what doors are going to open as a result of it. And if I hadn't taken that first job back in the 2000s working on organisational culture, I don't think, you know, 12 years later I would have been working on women Peace and Security with UN Women in New York or all the different countries that I've been to since then. So taking initiative, taking opportunities is really important. Understanding that I don't know everything and while I like to think I am a bit of an expert and I should accept that and own it, I still don't know everything. So for me, like I said, it's learning is a continuous journey for me. Um, I don't, it's not just about academic study. It is about just what I learn every day, every time I'm interacting with the, with the people that I work with on the projects that I do is learning. And then of course, lastly is prioritizing personal growth. So for me, it has been the academic study which 10 years ago if you had said to me that i would would be doing my phd now and i would be doing it on an element of you know human security and peace operations i just would have laughed at them because i probably wouldn't have heard those words before and so these things happen in a short space of time and here i am and i would just never have thought that i was academically gifted to be able to do something like this and yet here i am so i think yeah Personal growth is a really important thing and I don't feel that it ever stops.
0: Mm. So controlling your thoughts and owning your expertise, taking initiative, learning and personal growth. And I would even say to the clients that come into my coaching container around this taking initiative, it just prompted a thought within me is I'm sure that you've not just taken or said yes and accepted offers that you've gone out into the world and created opportunities for yourself that didn't otherwise exist and I always encourage my clients in that direction as well don't wait for the opportunity that you, that you might get to say yes to get out there like create the forums create the conversations connect with the people who inspire you and can make a contribution to the problems that you care about solving so
1: yeah, well i often say to some of the younger women that i mentor that nobody is going to promote you or advance you as well as you will do yourself. And whether that's you know advocating for yourself to get a particular posting in the military or whether it's to to achieve some other opportunity that might exist that you might previously have thought was not open to you, no woman gets anywhere without advocating for themselves. And even on this course recently in Korea, one of the senior women we had there uh, explained that no women from her military, and I think she was from Nepal – No, sorry, Mongolia, actually. And she said no women from her military had been deployed to a peacekeeping operation before. This is a few years ago. And so she took it upon herself to advocate for that to occur, and then it did. And then, of course, more women went after her. And so this change for women in terms of addressing some of these historical disadvantages have not occurred without women actually saying, I want to do that. And I just want to recall a story from way back in the 1980s when I was about 24 or 25 years old and I was working at the Naval College, which is where they train the young officers. And at that point they were generally only male trainees and I was on the staff. And every year they would undertake um, uh, adventure training to walk the Kokoda Trek in Papua New Guinea. And at the time they were calling for some of the staff to, to be the staff to go with the young officers as part of looking after them and everything. And, uh, I said, well, I want to do it. And they said, uh, some of them, some of the men said, well, no, you can't do it because you're a woman. <laughs> I said, yes, well, I was last time I looked, but <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm fit and healthy and there's no reason why I can't do it. And because of course no woman had done it before. And this is, this is back in the times when Kokoda was only open to the military, not open to everybody like it is now. It's very much a commercial venture. Where all organisations and people can go and do it. But back back in the 80s, it was only open to the Australian military to do. And it was just one male lieutenant, actually, who was in charge of the expedition who said, uh, well, if you can pass the fitness test, I have no problem with you going. And it wasn't an issue. You know, like I didn't fall over and nothing happened to me. I did the trek. You know, I got sick like everybody else did. I still carried my own pack. I did everything that I needed to do. And there was no issue at all about me doing it. And so if I hadn't said, I want to do it, you know, I don't know when it would have happened that a military woman might have actually undertaken that particular activity. And so I think that's probably my first example of when I put my hand up and said, I want to do something that hasn't been done before. And not to make waves about it and not to make a big show about it, but actually just because at the time I thought, hang on, I'm an officer in the Navy, I'm qualified, I'm a professional, why can't I do it? You know, if you're doing it, why can't I do it? And it was as simple as that.
0: Oh, I love that mindset and I love the flow on collective impact that that would have had. And imagine for anyone out there that's uh, attempting to create positive change in the world, uh, it does require courage and I think at times you will feel alone um, at the leading edge when you're going first. But um, what a pathway you've carved out for everyone who's followed you. yeah, well done. Congratulations. As we um, start to, we're going to start to wind up, Jenna, which I'm sorry to say, I, could, I feel like we could have this conversation for several hours. Not sure how long people would listen for, but what are the two or three most important things being required of you as a leader in bringing about positive change in the world?
1: The first thing I would say is that we need to give our time and energy. And whether it's to to our personal life, whether it's to our work, I mean, we lead in, all, in many capacities. We lead in our homes. We lead in our families. Like I like to think I've been a really good positive role model for my daughters that takes leadership. Whether you're leading in the community, whether you're leading in your workplace, giving time and energy, actually showing that you're focused on, you know, simply, for example, being focused on the person that you're speaking to in any one conversation. That's a really important, you know, I think bottom line anyway, in terms of giving your time and energy is actually listening to people, but to anything. So whether it's, you know, you might be volunteering. So giving your time and energy to that, to working, to studying and to self. The second thing is I call them the three C's. And I think it's about being consistent, being credible and being co-engaged. So I, I like to think that people know my brand in terms of who I am as this international development consultant and expert and they know what i deliver so i'm consistent in, in what i do and how i deliver it i feel that i had the credibility because i've got the experience i've got a quite a long cv which is now so embarrassing long i've cut off almost the first 25 years of my career because it doesn't matter anymore and then being just co engage, like being engaged with people is so important because i can't do my work without being actually engaged i can't sit here even at my desk and do my work without engaging either by Zoom or phone calls or, you know, going out and meeting people or whatever it is. So that is such an important part of um helping to bring about positive change. And then I think the third and important and not you know not the most important but still important is that you actually achieve. Now a lot of us do a lot of talking. Um we might do a lot of research, <laughs> we might do a lot of writing, um but I'm talking about the boots on the ground stuff. Like or getting your hands dirty, or all those other kind of expressions that we use around actually achieving something. So, you know, it might be, I mean, I've I've helped develop a couple of gender strategies for, um, you know, other armed forces around the world. Um, Seeing them put that into place, to me, you know, to start to action that and then start to action some of the initiatives that are in that strategy is some of the boots on the ground stuff. But the boots on the ground stuff is also when I've consulted and engaged with them to actually develop this uh, policy. Or whether it's going to career and um, facilitating the training on leadership and empowerment, that's boots on the ground stuff. It's actually just getting in there and doing something. And so actually achieving results. So not just talking about it, not just writing about it, but actually achieving some results. And I say this is only bite-sized change, right? I'm only I'm only a small cog in a big wheel, but if we all think like that, then we're all collectively, you know, changing in a big way. But we can only do our own bit and I don't, you know, ever say that I'm part of this, you know, I'm the big wheel, that I'm, you know, that I'm wielding this, you know, or that I'm sort of turning this big wheel. I'm not. I'm just a small cog like many of my colleagues are and we are doing our bit in whatever niche area that we're working in but it's actually just doing, getting on with it and doing it, I think is so important.
0: What great advice. So give your time and energy in that focused way, be consistent, credible and co-engaged. And this last one, achieve, like do something, contribute something tangible. I love that. And, you know, to the extent that you've caused me to reflect. Wow, Ange, how well am I doing that? Where do I really need to lean into the the creation or the delivery of something, even on this last point, achieve? Like how can I focus my energy on delivering something that's tangible and impactful? I really have appreciated that. And to the extent that anyone who's listening might be, you know, feeling a little awakened or triggered by those remarks, then you've given us all cause for reflection, which I really appreciate Is there anything that you need my audience to know or hear, do as a result of our conversation today? It's for sustainability change leaders, good people who are trying to do good things in the world and create positive change. Is there any parting remarks? Well, other
1: than just to say that just believe in yourself to start with. You know, if you are the expert or if you are the most knowledgeable person on this particular issue, even if it hasn't been addressed before in your organisation, or industry or profession, um, know and appreciate that you are the per- right person to do it because if not you, who, and if not now, when, you know, who's going to do it? And the second thing is just be persistent. Don't worry about the pushback, even if you have to have your kind of, I used to say one conversation at a time sometimes. And that's why it's so tiring because you have to keep explaining things to people, but be persistent. And, you know, you might get knocked back after knocked back after knocked back, but. Even women would not be where they are today if the suffragettes 100 years ago had decided it was all too hard to get the vote for women, you know, and we've taken our knocks along the way. And so whether it's men or women, and there are a lot of men out there who are allies of women and are gender equality advocates because gender equality affects both women and men, not just women, it's just really important to be persistent and just keep on doing it. Until such time, of course, you get worn down, or burnt out and I'm not saying these things don't happen but I haven't had that experience yet and I've just always just continued to get up and and dust myself off and keep going and you know you can only do that to the extent that's possible for you as an individual but then if you look after yourself I feel and if you lead yourself well and you lead others well then I feel that you're putting yourself in the best position to be able to do that.
0: That's wonderful and powerful advice and it's been a very powerful Conversation to be part of today, Jen. I know that you would have like reignited the fire in the belly of many of our listeners. And I well imagine that many of them will be out there taking action that they wouldn't have otherwise taken because they've benefited from this conversation. So thank you so much, genuinely. And uh, I'll pop the links in the show notes around how you can contact. Jen, um, we've got a website, we've got LinkedIn, we've got her book Against the Wind, and no doubt a raft of other papers <laughs> that you've produced. So Jen, thank you so much uh, for your contribution to this conversation on the secret life of leaders.
1: Yeah, thanks, Angela. It's been an absolute pleasure and honour to be here. Thank you.
0: If you're driving change in some hard to shift area, of sustainability, whether it be environmental sustainability, social justice, governance change, or anything else. And you're at the leading edge. You're going first. I hope you've taken inspiration from this episode today with Jennifer Whitmer. She is driving change in the face of significant resistance and it is working and she's cutting a path through it in a way that allows her followers to join her, both at the organisational level where she's genuinely affecting institutional, structural, cultural change, and at the individual level as she supports women to find their confidence and make a difference in the areas that they most care about. The way that Jen does this with such competence such personal integrity and such strength has been so inspiring to connect with and she's certainly given me cause for reflection about how I can play bigger and stronger in these areas that I care so much about as well and I hope that that is the case for you as well. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Secret Life of Leaders. Make sure you subscribe in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode. We would love for you to share this podcast with friends, family, or colleagues who might be interested and inspired by its content. You can follow me, Angela Koning, on LinkedIn or Instagram. And until next time, lead yourself well and everything else falls into place.